At today's 11th hour lecture, the very last lecture of the summer, I'm so happy to welcome Elizabeth Robinson, who's here to inspire our community-minded instincts to provide tips on how to start a journal, a press, a series, or a blog, and to discuss why such active and attentive participation can affect our work and sense of worth in a wider literary conversation. Elizabeth Robinson's recent books are Blue Heron and Counterpart. Elizabeth is also the author of a nonfiction book on ghosts and has been a winner of the National Poetry Series and the Fence Modern Poets Prize, as well as receiving grants from the Fund for Poetry and the Foundation for Contemporary Arts. We're very happy to have her here today. Please welcome Elizabeth Robinson. Am I audible? Great. Um, so in addition to thanking Amy for everything that she does, I think it would be timely to thank Carol since this is her last 11th hour after how many years? Nine? Nine years of organizing these talks. So. I'm, I'm sorry to embarrass you. Um, so what, what um, Carol has given me the chance to do over the last several summers that I've been here is talk about ways that we as writers are still writers when we're doing non-writing things. And I don't um, want to in any way undermine the primacy of what happens when you're working with language by yourself, but I think that you continue to be a writer when you do things like write a review or um, give a reading or um, put together a manuscript after writing the work. So I'm really interested in the ways these kinds of activities are continuous with the solitary work. And that's, in a sense, what I want to talk about today and also use as kind of incitement to you to take with you, if you're not already, making a publication or participating, curating a reading series or whatever you may be doing, in your community when you leave here. So um, I'm curious if you will raise your hand if you have had a poem published, or poem or story or a nonfiction piece published in a periodical. Yes, almost everybody. If you have had a book published. So again, like a hefty number of people. How many people have had a book published by a large commercial press where there's maybe a print run of more than a thousand. Many fewer people are raising their hands. So um, two things. First, somebody spent time and money, probably out of pocket, to publish your work. So deep bow of appreciation for the people who do that. You almost never see the money again. It's an act of love. And the number of hands that went up when we talked about a big press, a nationally dis distributed press, were really small. So that means that most of the publication that happens amongst us who are serious writers and amongst most writers in the United States is small press publication. So that means that you don't have commercial funding. Um, you're working in a really different way within the arts community. So I'm going to just sort of burst into 
what I have written here and then hopefully have a good deal of time afterwards to talk and compare notes. But um, I've liked this week the way sometimes people interpolate. So if you have a question or a comment as I'm going along, raise your hand. Um, I also am someone as a writer who works a lot off of exemplars. I look at what other people do, especially when I'm confronted with something that interests me but which seems maybe difficult to enact. So I'm going to start by considering the case of Ezra Pound. I'm not, uh, let's just put to the side his ugly fascist and anti-Semitic attitudes for the moment because there's many ways in which he was actually a remarkable exemplar. Not finding a publisher for his own first book, Alume Spento, he published it himself. That was in 1908, and he was able to print 100 copies for $8. He distributed copies of this book to strategic readers, editors, publishers, other writers, and that's how he launched his own writing career. And this is perhaps the most simple and direct way of becoming a publisher. Yet here's a writer who is never content to merely see his own work published. For him, publication was almost always a do-it-yourself or get others to do it proposition, and it was a mode of instigation. Was the larger or more commercial literary world failing his vision for literature? Well, then he would start movements like imagism and vorticism. He would discover and champion writers like Ernest Hemingway, H.D., James Joyce, and T.S. Eliot. He would help edit and publish works like The Wasteland and harangue editors into publishing his other friends' writings. Indeed, Pound confronted the dawning of the 20th century with a generative mixture of disgust at the limitations of mainstream public publication and excitement about the new literature that was making its distinctive voice heard in the United States and in Europe. So here's a quote from him in a letter he wrote um, to, the, to Margaret Anderson, the editor of the Little Review. In the new Condé Nast Glacé periodical system, the contents were selected rigorously on the basis of how much expensive advertising they would carry. Hence, the sameness and impression given by successive numbers of these bright and snappy periodicals. These things ultimately leave a vacuum. They leave a need for intellectual communication unconditioned by considerations as to whether a given idea or trend in art will get ads from the leading corset companies. So you see like the dilemma right away is what is commercially viable versus what might be more artistically provocative. In, 19, in a 1925 tribute from the first issue of, of a magazine called The Quarter, Ernest Hemingway wrote in the dedication to Pound, we have Pound the major poet devoting, say, one-fifth of his time to poetry. With the rest of his time, he tries to advance the fortunes, both material and artistic, of his friends. He defends his friends when they are attacked. He gets them into magazines and out of jail. He introduces them to wealthy women. He gets publishers to take their books. He sits up all night with them when they claim to be dying. He advances them hospital expenses and dissuades them from suicide. So Pound never really saw himself simply as an individual poet. He understood art making as a process that involved, in addition to one's own creative work, criticism and fomenting the kind of community that could shape and reconcept shape conceptions of what art is. So 
this is my theme, of course, but writing is always a communal activity. It is always continuous with your own individual efforts. With characteristic boldness, he wrote in a 1915 letter to Harriet Monroe that he saw his role as to keep alive a certain group of advancing poets, to set the arts in their rightful place as the acknowledged guide and lamp of civilization. And within this, Pound engaged in all the bargaining and plotting that is intrinsic to getting a publication off the ground. His letters to Margaret Anderson of the Little Review, for whom he was a kind of background editor and fundraiser, feature all sorts of machinations, how to get a sponsor to support the magazine, how to rouse readers to subscribe, which if he could give us the key to that, we'd all be so much better off, how to make it eventually self-supporting as a publication, how to arrange to get contributors paid, another novel idea in the 21st century, how many pages or words per issue he could commandeer for writing by himself or his friends. So here's a quote from Pound to Anderson. Definitely, then, I want an official organ, vile phrase. I mean, I want a place where I and T.S. Eliot can appear once a month or once an issue, and where James Joyce can appear when he likes, and where Wyndham Lewis can appear if he comes back from the war. Definitely a place for our regular appearance and where our friends and readers, what few of them there are, can look with assurance of finding us. So you can't really read this without feeling a little discomfort at his assertiveness because it was not his magazine. It was Margaret Anderson's magazine. Um, And his insistence that his own work be featured in every issue does seem a bit self-aggrandizing. He states elsewhere in the same letter that he worked to get his friends to subscribe to Poetry Magazine, but then they complained that his poetry showed up there too infrequently. And that's his rationale, why he needs her to publish him each issue. But at the same time, there are a few markers in this letter that I think bear further note. Firstly, Pound wants to include Wyndham Lewis's work if he comes back from the war. So there's a sense of historical contingency here, The world is in upheaval politically, socially, and artistically, and Pound wants to be a full participant in shaping a new coherence from that flux. Secondly, he readily acknowledges that at this point, he and his peers have very few readers. The magazine, which he does ultimately seed as Anderson's, is an agreed-upon site for them to meet, for exploring and taking risks in relation to what literature is to be. A century later, it's productive for us to look through a similar lens and consider what resources we have now and what has arisen in the meantime that could lend itself to vital publishing projects. So Ezra Pound, as pushy and sometimes politically ugly as he could be, gives us a snapshot here of all that arises in being an editor of a magazine or press. It involves pragmatism as well as idealism. There is lots of tedium and detail work, lots of finagling now with software, printers, authors, designers, but there's also the joy and excitement of untethering writing from its solitary origins in the author's mind and bringing it into a community of readers and writers. In preparing this paper, I queried a number of editors and asked them questions about the whys and wherefores of their presses. The answer to why one might start a small press or a magazine were all variations on a single sentiment. 
We started this press in order to publish work that we value and which we felt would otherwise go unpublished. So every single person I talked to pretty much said the same thing. There's a sense of responsibility embedded in this. The publication wants to give writers an opportunity to be read and to shape or reshape what literature is. But the amount of work involved in this also means that editing and publishing has to be an intrinsically meaningful and enjoyable task. Ed Smallfield, who co-edits Apogee Press with Alice Jones, expressed this with a very characteristic and winning enthusiasm. He says, bringing a book into the world is an incomparable pleasure. The only thing that can compare to it, the only thing that is better, is one's own writing. So you can see his incredible generosity there, but also I think it's kind of wonderful to think that such a person is publishing other people's work. And I like that this statement makes publishing someone else and writing one's own work continuous, because I believe that reading and writing are always mutually influencing and enriching. The mutual reciprocity between reader and writer and between author and publisher is historically inflected. New publications, whether magazines or book presses, whether online or hard copy, inevitably respond to their moment and their context. Andrew Schelling, who made a series of small, informal, and yet surprisingly influential magazines in the 1980s in the Bay Area, notes that every generation needs to develop its own means of publication or remain enthralled to the values of an older generation. Ben Friedlander, who was his co-editor, and I co-founded, this is the name of their magazine, Jimmy and Lucy's House of K, because we saw that some of our writing, if honest, would not be published by existing magazines. So this was just um, something they Xeroxed and stapled in the corner. It was just eight and a half by 11. It was utterly unglamorous, but it came into the Bay Area during a time of a lot of transition in poetics, where there was big fights between lyric poets and people doing something called language poetry. And it was a kind of bridge between these two communities that made space for more people to write and have their work read and published. <clears throat> um, Andrew Schelling also, he's thinking about other reasons that you might start a publication. He says, for example, you might have a bioregional presence, say the Rocky Mountains where he lives, in which poets, essay writers, historians, naturalists, and so on can meet on the page to mutually give voice to their reason, their region. So you can see how projects get shaped in very distinct ways. For many years, I worked with a poet named Colleen Lookingbill on Etherdome Press, through which we published two chapbooks per year. So um, a chapbook is, is not perfect bound. It tends to be more simple, stapled, um, informal publication, smaller selection of work. Um, so we would each pick a woman writer who had no previous book or chapbook publications because we had noted the persistent and ongoing imbalance in publications between men and women, and we wanted to give women of any age entree into the publishing world. More recently, I've been working on a small magazine with a poet named Steve Seidenberg, and our goal is to reintegrate an element of lyricism from the far reaches of experimental poetry. So um, you could say that our project is a bit reactive, but I prefer to think that all publications and presses are at least responsive to the literary cosmos as the editors understand it. 
and as it is perceived by them in their time and place. Which I hope would be permission to you to just look around you and think about what you want to do and what you want to express as a, as a reader and writer. So, do you want to start a small press or a magazine? And what are the characteristics and draws of each of these? And this is the most truncated and impressionistic response to this question. And opinionated, I will openly grant. So you can fill in the blanks in the gaps later. Um, so I think that a magazine is a fun and powerful publication because it immediately constitutes a group. There's a sense of sociality in the magazine because part of reading a magazine is reading its bigger picture. What brings all these writers together? How do their individual efforts speak to each other? Ideally, a magazine can provide an ever-transitioning from issue to issue portrait of tensions and affirmations that inhere in a particular conversation about writing. So if you read, for example, Poetry Magazine, you might see those tensions erupting in the correspondence in, in ongoing disagreements because they include essays and letters in subsequent issues. And I think that's really positive and productive. I like that magazines get to experiment with their own philosophy of writing without having to carve it in stone. There's a kind of mutability and ongoing openness. Each issue is a new take, and you might, as an editor, happily risk publishing work in a magazine that you would not invest in in a book. So it's a way of trying out things. Suzanne Dykeman, who worked on the Five Fingers Review, said that one of the pleasures of editing that magazine, which worked through themed issues, was that the editors were continually surprised at the infinite number of ways a single topic could be approached. So they might have the imaginative spark to set up a theme, but the authors made that spark blossom, if you'll excuse the mixed metaphors. Um, practically speaking, publishing a magazine helps with its own publicity. When you have a multitude of authors, each will be sharing the magazine with their personal networks, and that helps get out the word about what you're doing. The downside is you may be deluged with inappropriate submissions. If you get into one of those writer's work things that list publications, it's just a freaking nightmare. You're going to get stuff from people who have never read the magazine and don't know what you're doing. Um, and and that's, that was one of the things that editors said was one of the worst things about editing a magazine, sifting through submissions from people who had no idea what the magazine was doing. Um, one of the other downsides of publishing a magazine is that magazines tend to run on a schedule, and I've seen so many small magazines say that they're going to be quarterlies, when actually they were annuals. So if it's helpful to you to run on a schedule, make a realistic schedule. Um, I'm personally a hard copy person. I love books. I love the way they smell. I love being able to turn the page back and forth. But there's a lot to be said for electronic magazines. Um, they're much less expensive, and they permit you to take on projects that would be difficult to do in print publications. So, for example, you want to look at long poems, and to print those in a hard copy is quite expensive. It's not expensive if you do it online. So it really opens up some of the possibilities. There's people doing really interesting things with hypertext, 
And you can't do that in a hard copy. So the, the online forum and the way it links with other publications opens up the sort of movement of the writing can be really exciting. Um, and the other thing that's great about this financially is you can forward your publication to anyone who has an email address. It's a great thing if you're teaching. You can just send it off to your students and have them read the material. No more postal expenses. Webzines are also easy to publicize on social media like Facebook. And if you, have, if you want to support your authors, you can put links to their work in other places. So it really burgeons into a network in a really fruitful way, I think. But maybe you really want to run a press. And why would you make that choice? given how many headaches that's going to lead to. This is a different way of sculpting a philosophy of art or an aesthetics. Book by book, you're representing individual authors much more deeply. So you're giving their, their readers an opportunity to see more the full range of what they can do. And the relationship between an author and an editor-publisher, or even with a designer, can be ongoing and very satisfying. Think about how much fun it could be to help the author decide what work to include, whether an oversized page will better convey their work, and how the cover art can beguile the reader into the book. Or maybe you find yourself writing to an author you've always adored to ask them for a blurb for the book you're publishing. So there's a sort of sociality to that, too. These things are always about coming into community. So these, these tasks can be very creative and very relational. As you slowly build your list, finding new authors along the way, the very process may reveal your own sensibility to you. Editing is always a process. It is never static, and it is always a project of discovery. The downside is, of course, that a single author can help get the word out only so far, and so publicity for books can be challenging. And also to build a list that communicates a robust sense of literature takes time and staying power in a world where there's very little funding for this kind of project. Few small publishers have the time and resources to publish very many books per year. One possibility for those who like the sensuousness of the book is to print chapbooks, as I already showed you. They feature shorter selections, but because of this, they can entail less risk. Less risk. They're cheaper to print, they're easier to store, more portable, and they permit you as an edit editor to framework in a really concise and attractive way. The liabilities are mostly marketing liabilities. Books without spines are usually not welcome on bookstore shelves because in order to convey what's going on, you have to turn the book face out. And with the kind of limitations on bookshelf space, most stores don't want to do that. Um, also, this book happens to have an ISBN, but a lot of times the print runs for chapbooks are so small, 50, 100, 150, that it's not worth it to get an ISBN, so it's almost impossible to catalog them, therefore, to get them into a distribu distribution network. Um, Prairie Lights, I will say, has a wonderful collection of chapbooks, and that's where I got this. And Broadsides, which are single-page Publications. Yeah. Sorry, does it cost, it cost money to get an ISBN? Yes. Yes, you do have to pay for. Um, I usually buy them in lots of 10 and pay maybe like $150. So, good question. 
She asked, do you have to pay to get an ISBN? And you do. So there's a company whose name I can't, but if you just Google purchase ISBNs, the company will come up. Um, and then you tend to buy them in, in lots of 10 or so because they're cheaper that way. Um, still, chapbooks exist in a special world, and they feature some of the most beautiful books that I've ever seen. They're often made by hand, hand-sewn, and Suzanne Dykeman, who I mentioned earlier, said that one of the best things about being a publisher was sitting at a table with her co-editors of Woodland Editions and assembling and sewing the gorgeous chapbooks that they made. So they're, they're so full of love. It's a really wonderful mode of publishing as long as you understand its limitations. Um, so before I go on, I'm going to recapitulate the responses that publishers gave me when I asked them what the biggest hassles of publishing are. Nobody liked the burden of rejecting work, but the joy of accepting writing that you love seems to match that problem. More onerous are the commitments of time, money, and the labor of publicity and distribution. Janet Holmes of Asada Press is the only publisher I queried who gets any institutional funding. She gets it from Boise State University. But even so, she says that one of the biggest problems she has is finding people to help me since I can't afford to pay anyone. So she does all the design, almost all the design herself, or the interior design. She pays a designer to do the covers um, and then works with students. But that's, that's difficult in the sense that you have to keep retraining people as they move through the program. Every other person I wrote to, often people who have long-term, even decades-long projects, is funding their publications out of pocket. If this is discouraging, let it also be liberating. You may or may not be successful in writing grants to support your press, but if you take that route, you spend hours applying to what Rosemary Waldrop of Burning Deck Press says is akin to a lottery system. I, I once spent many more hours doing follow-up paperwork for a grant than I did on the actual publication. They just, I mean, they would make me rewrite sentences to fit their little rubric. As Andrew Schelling says, a publication that can be fleet, responsive, and is only dependent on the vision of the editors is one of the liveliest. So with or without grant support, what can you expect to pay for? Unless you do the design yourself, you'll be paying a designer. Possibly permission fees for cover art, if you want to borrow something and you pay a permissions fee. Printing costs, and there's a conversation we can have later about print-on-demand versus traditional offset printing. Any advertising that you want to do. If you sign up with a distributor who's going to help you get the work out, and if it's a small press, the distributor is going to be pretty much as stressed about keeping up with this as you are. So the efficacy of small press distribution tends to be not super fabulous. You're going to be paying distributors' fees, which typically include an annual cost and fees for each new title, and sometimes storage fees. And there's a cost for ISBNs, and if you get a Library of Congress number, um, you don't always have to do that. Other publicity costs, like postage for review and contributors' copies, and costs that come with book parties and readings. Increasingly, bookstores don't just let people give readings. They want you to pay for the privilege of doing a reading in the bookstore. And small presses can't afford to do that. 
Um, as a poet, I live in a universe in which authors are paid almost exclusively in contributors' copies, but I understand that prose writers sometimes get money for what they write. So if you pay your author, that's an additional cost. Distribution and publicity are always linked with financial obligations. But people are getting really creative with things like doing Kickstarter fundraisers. So, Do you guys know what Kickstarter is? It's an online um, fundraising thing. And so you post up and you say, you pay a small percentage to, I think it's linked to Amazon, um, for using the site. And then you post a goal. So say you want to raise $2,000. And you get people to pledge. And if you don't make $2,000, it's off. But if you get all the way to $2,000, you also typically offer premiums to people. Like if you pledge $20, then you'll get a signed copy of the book. And if you pledge $50, we're going to kiss you really hard and give you, a, you know, stuff like that. Um, the review periodical Rain Taxi solicits donations from authors and sells them on an annual eBay auction. And there's a press called Les Figues that is doing this year a summer readathon. So you sponsor a press author or editor by pledging a certain amount of money per book that they read. So these are really creative ways of getting some money. And increasingly, small presses try to lure you into the fold with annual subscriptions. So for a discounted flat fee, you get all the books the press publishes in a year. Um, Burning Deck Press, who I mentioned earlier, also made a practice of publishing a book by a very well-known author every couple of years. This is very well-known in relation to the experimental literature that they published. But it was obviously a title they really liked, so they weren't selling out. But they were very complicit with their well-known authors like Paul Oster or Robert Creeley in trading on name recognition in order to make a profit that would extend towards costs of publishing less well-known authors. So you see community really building out of that, where uh, in a sense, a well-known author is sponsoring publications by less well-known authors. Um, I'm not going to talk about incorporating as a nonprofit because it takes a huge amount of work, and you need to be running your press as a full-time, full business, even if nonprofit enterprise, to make that worthwhile. So most small presses, it's not worthwhile to become a nonprofit. But there is a nonprofit called AA Arts that has an interesting umbrella model in which several presses and other projects have come together to be part of the nonprofit. So I work with a press called Instance Press that's under the AA Arts umbrella. And when I pay into my own press for printing costs or whatever, then I can claim it as a tax deduction. And one of the small presses under the AA Arts umbrella, we're sort of talking about this last night, is called Subpress. And it's a co-op press in which all the editorial publishing um, participants pledge a percentage, if I understand this correctly, of their annual income. So it's almost like a tithe. And then um, they take turns selecting manuscripts. So sometimes it's their own, or sometimes it's somebody else's. And everybody just agrees to support each person as it's their turn. Um, this models what Andrew Schelling said about publishing. He says, the image would be an ecosystem. Editor or editors are keystone species, but not God. Don't stand outside and pass judgment. Be part of the food chain. Um, perhaps the single easiest way to make a publishing project affordable is to do it collaboratively and have every editor pay a share of the costs. 
Over the time I've worked, over time I've worked on several magazines and presses and I've never ever done it alone. Working with other editors is according to my respondents and in my own view, one of the very best things about being an editor or publisher. It's true that one of the big hassles of publishing can be dealing with co-editors who don't follow through with their commitments. Um, last fall in Boulder we had catastrophic floods and one of my co-editors was supposed to have given me review copies to send out and she didn't and they went away with the flood. And I still feel pain thinking like these brand new beautiful books, if she had turned them in to me when she was supposed to, they would be in readers' hands, not, not in... Um, a pile of muddy things. I mean, it's also hard sometimes to coordinate with people who have really disparate schedules or live far away from each other. But despite these challenges, the people I talked to consistently cited working with co-editors as one of the principal pleasures of working on a press. Laura Sims says that the benefit of having collaborators is that you share the work and the financial burden and you're in good company. People you like who share a common goal. And it's nice that we get to be in more constant contact because of that, too. Ed Smallfield likewise observes that the rigor of having a co-equal partner makes for a much more interesting result than any one person's personal choices. Andrew Schelling says, the benefit is that you create something far more than the sum of what the individuals could possibly create. Brainstorming, talking, up all night having ideas, things come about that are unpredictable and just right. So working with others can build a generous, stretchy teamwork. And for a while, one editor of Instance Press, which is the press I work on, handled all the distribution paperwork, and I tended to work with the authors. But lately, I'm more involved with distribution, while others are doing more proofreading and correspondence. And multiple editors permits you to shift responsibilities when necessary and agreed upon. So in that way, I've slowly learned things about, say, how to work with a printer, or how to get ISBNs, or other practical matters, and you, you can become teachers of each other. The same thing applies in getting together with other small press publishers. So this might happen informally, but if you go to a conference like the AWP, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, just take a walk around the book room. I've talked to people there about the contrasting merits of print-on-demand or offset printing, designers who will let you pay in installments, um, how to set a website up and get it running. So Instance Press published a poet, Kimberly Lyons, who has her own press called Lunar Chandelier. And she set up a press blog and a website, and now she's helping somebody else learn these skills so they can start an online magazine. Writers who typically work alone can find the generativity and community of publishing a great antidote to the isolation that comes from the focus on your own work. And instead of waiting to hear if a magazine or press is going to take your manuscript, the writer-publisher is the real agent. You are contacting the writers whose work you most like. You are demonstrating what you think is most exciting in contemporary literature. And you often end up into the bargain getting tons of free books from other presses and writers. When Virginia and Leonard Wolf started the Hogarth Press in 1915, they had a kind of casual sense of starting a printing press for all her friends' stories. Leonard thought it would be a good therapeutic activity that would soothe Virginia's sensitive psyche, and Virginia thought it would be a nice escape for Leonard, permitting him to step away from the demands of the more political writing and editing he was doing. But Wolf's biographer, Hermione Lee, says with amusement, 
This became basket weaving with a vengeance. In practice, the press was a time-consuming occupation which immediately gripped them both and which at once gave a sense of possibilities opening up. So be forewarned. When I started my first press project, I thought I would control it and not it me. But what I love about small press projects to this day is that they are renegade, defiant efforts. One day, I just was talking with my friend Colleen, and we decided that we would start a press. And people told us that we were silly, but no one could stop us. We had no idea what we were doing. But as with all creative adventures, ignorance provided for a kind of freedom. We made some fairly serious mistakes, and we learned. For certain kinds of temperaments, publishing is addictive, and it is its own art form. So back to Ezra, agitator and visionary for the arts, because he understood this well. At his Ezuversity in Rapallo, Italy, he mentored young writers, among them one young would-be poet, James Lachlan. Pound was not overly optimistic about Lachlan's gifts as a poet. He told him he was hopeless. But he plied him with books and the Poundium curriculum. Until, wrote Lachlan, Pound said it was time for me to go back to Harvard and do something useful. Being useful meant that I should publish books because at the time publishing was still suffering from the depression and none of Pound's friends except Hemingway had steady publishers. Using money that his wealthy father gave him, Lachlan founded New Directions Publishing but often could not find bookstores to carry the press's new and unconventional works. Lachlan for a time became a traveling salesman imploring small bookstores across the nation to stock his list and they did, he thought, often out of pity. His list developed to include the, those writers whom he cons- we now consider masters of the 20th century, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, John Berryman, Elizabeth Bishop, Tennessee Williams. And Lachlan also brought works into English translation that had not previously been available in the United States, writing by Borges, Rilke, Kafka, Neruda. What Lachlan insisted had always been an intimate group venture catalyzed by Pound's command that he do something useful, literally, if subtly and slowly, transform the literary landscape of the United States. Though Lachlan died in 1997, the press continues on. This is actually a little New Directions chapbook. In the course of his 61-year career as an editor and publisher, James Lachlan proved that publishing wasn't just a secondary option for a person who couldn't write, and his writing was actually really wonderful but a necessary art and craft, one through which his many goals and gifts coalesced and through which we have a vast and valuable and still growing library of books. So now let's talk about small presses. Thank you. (laughs) I'm gonna put on my glasses so I can see you. Um, So I'm curious to hear people's own experiments with this kind of thing, modest, grand, spectacular victories, embarrassing failures. Yes? The first thing that I did, well, the first thing that I ever did was I decided that I would make some broadsides. So broadsides would be one-page publications. 
Um, you know, it could be as simple as taking a, just a regular piece of typing paper, um, computer paper, and printing something and giving it out. And um, so I was so bold, I just wrote to my favorite poet, Robert Creeley, and said, will you give me a poem for a broadside? And he wrote back and said, sure, here's one. So I was introduced to this process delusionally, thinking it would be really easy, and that I could talk to anybody that I wanted to. Um, and that was super cheap, because what I really did was try to make it look pretty, but I just Xeroxed it on colored paper. Uh, the second thing that I did was this chapbook press with my friend to publish women who had never been published before. And I think what was hard for us was we found work that we liked. We knew we just wanted to do chapbooks because we didn't have that much money. But doing the design, moving it from you know, like the 8.5 by 11 page and getting the design, because we didn't have enough money for a, a designer, that was hard. Now there's a lot more software that I think you can learn pretty quickly, but you might have to invest in that. And then there's sometimes the challenge, like the first book that we, chapbooks that we did, one of the women wanted images in it, and then we had to figure out how to make that work, and then another woman went to the printer behind our back and said, no, we want, I want this paper that costs, you know, like $200 more. So then you also realize that as an editor, you have to exert your authority over your project. Yeah? What did you do with the broadside? Um, I would just give it away to people, and I would mail it out, because it was really cheap to, like, it's, you don't have the postage costs with a book. Um, another thing that I've been doing in the last couple years is getting little cardstock luggage tags. You know what I mean? Like, they're kind of manila and I've been having poems made into rubber stamps, and I just stamp them on the, the cardstock. And I consider that a viable publishing project. And then I can give them out, or I can put a bunch of them in an envelope. I mean, the poems have to be very short, or little paragraphs of prose, and just get them out into the world. And so I would just say there's lots and lots of ways to publish things. Yeah. So print-on-demand is increasingly popular for people who have small presses um, or if you have storage problems because with print-on-demand, you can do a smaller print run, like even 50 copies of a book because a lot of times storage is one of the biggest hassles. That came up when I asked people, like, what do you do with the books? Um, so then the, the print-on-demand venue will save your files and you can reprint later. The fewer copies you do, the more it costs per book. But if you do traditional offset printing, they often won't print the book at all unless you do, say, a thousand copies. So then, so then you're in charge of dealing with all of that bulk. And a thousand copies for a lot of small press poetry, which is mostly what I work with, they're never going to sell out. Like a lot of pretty good presses don't even do, they do maybe 500 print runs. So that's one thing to think about when you're going to publish something is how big you want your print run to be for what you're doing. Um, and if you, if you have print on demand, then it helps you to sort of keep things in print slowly over time. Um, one of the 
things that's a relief about the books that we lost in the flood is that they're all printed print on demand, so I can go back to the publisher. Does that give you? Yeah. I think it's important to note that the technology has improved enormously. Yeah. Yeah, it used to be that print on demand books immediately broadcast that they were print on demand. They just didn't look as good, but now I don't think you can really tell the difference. Yeah. Uh, I'm an ignoramus. Uh, so I wonder what exactly is offset printing? What does that phrase mean? And, and how, how does it differ from print on demand? Is it just quantity all at once, or is there something else different about it? It's a different process, and I'm not really good on that, but I think it's more traditional printing. Um, it actually makes a plate, yeah. and then they run it electronically. So Who do? The, the, the offset. That's the okay. Yeah. So it's almost more like Xerox, but yes. it, it, the quality is getting better and better. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. So, yeah. I don't have a blog, though. I know people that do, but it seems. Oh, she wanted to talk about blogs. I um, and if I had a blog, and I have never had a blog, it felt to me for a while like there's major literary energy going into blogging and that was a great way to get books reviewed once you had published them but it seems less active now and what I'm seeing more is um, people starting like little review not quite blogs but they're they're less conversational and more formal um, and that Facebook and other social media are kind of supplanting blogs just by directing you to things I don't, you know, I don't know if that's good or bad. Is somebody over here going to say something? Or? Can you give some examples of some great easing sites that you think are good models? Oh, no, I'm suddenly going to freeze up and draw a blank. Um, panic! There are so many good ones. Uh, easy sites that have good magazines. Can you guys think of... Brevity, yes. So really short nonfiction pieces. Ish. Yeah. What's that? Ishlit. Ishlit? Ish. Yeah. I don't know that one. So. So a lot of times I'm noticing too that um, institutions that don't have enough money to do print magazines, they're having their students do webzines, and they're they're really good. Did you have one, sir? Creative nonfiction. Creative nonfiction. And then you can get subscribers, so you can like keep sending the work out and make a. Because I get stuff from creative nonfiction like practically once a week. Um, there's tons and tons of little under the radar poetry ones. Can you think of anything? Typo. Typo. Octopus. Spolia is pretty good. Spolia. 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 So and they're you know they're kind of for any. Nonfiction, fiction, short, short, like brevity. Um, I think there is a flash fiction webzine uh, translation ones. So, yeah. This is a little different from that, but there's um, something called, it's only for women writers. I'm sorry for the men in the room, but it's called She Books. Um, and it's for short 
fiction or nonfiction, huh. and I don't remember what the maximum word count is, but they're that odd length where it's not a full book length, uh, but it's also longer than an essay or an article, so it's that weird in between, and it's only digitally published, but unlike uh, Amazon, um, perhaps, you, you do get a small advance. I think it depends on the length and maybe on the genre. Hmm. Uh, but it, and, and then you get a larger percentage of the sales than you would in a traditional publishing arrangement. So, and it's only digital. I mean, you can buy them on Kindle, you know, but there's no hard copy of it. But if anyone wanted to look up she books yeah. for shorter, you know, that weird in between, almost novella or even a little shorter than that. It's a good venue. It's pretty new. And it seems like that venue, because people don't want to publish things that aren't full-length books, but then the chapbook might not be big enough that it makes space for writing this really interesting that doesn't have a natural home otherwise. Um, a lot of poetry presses are now doing e-chapbooks where it's format, formatted really beautifully as though it were a book, and you can just print it up, and it looks like a book. But you can also just leave it online if you want to read it there. So, And I would also note that for people who are seeking grants, now the National Endowment for the Arts will accept um, as part of your publication history that qualifies you for a grant online publications. So there's a real shift in the world. That's true, but I still think it's kind of... He's saying that there's, you still have to have some print publications, but I think it's encouraging that there's a recognition that um, electronic publications are still really alive and mean something. Did you have something? You mean with our authors, like making contracts with our authors? We didn't because what we did was do 200 copies of books that, like our agreement with them quite explicitly, though not written out in legal form, was we're going to do 200 copies of this. It's going to go out of print really fast. We're going to give you 20 copies to do, which is a lot of contributors' copies for a print run of that size, to do with what you want, and we will send it to anyone you want us to send it to. And then it's poof out in the air. But it's and I'm I think one of the things I'm really proud of with that press project was we published twenty one women and nine of them have full length books. Some of them more than one book by now. So the, it served its purpose. But you know, it, it's not a bad idea to make a contract with your authors. Yeah, that never really came to too much. <laughs> Especially I, since we're so willing to give them away to anybody. But, yeah, but that's another, like, I have subscribed to presses like that. And it's, like, a total thrill to get, like, the new book every, you know. Yeah. And when you do that, you're really, really helping the press. When you subscribe, if they have a subscription service. Instance, yeah. So I do that with three people, now four people. And that makes us much more able to cover the costs. But, you know, Carol has an amazing press, and she has said nothing, so we should hear from her. (laughs) 
full-length collections. We did one chat book. What was a lot more. Yeah. Rescue, Rescue press. press. Yeah. Rescue. And there's Subscribe today. That's right. <laughs> and there's Rescue Press books in Prairie Lights. So. Yeah. Beautiful books. They are beautiful books. Yeah. That is a good question. My own kids are, she asked if there's any children's e-zines. Do you know? Check out the um, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Uh, oh, okay. So there's a, what is it called again? Okay, Society of Children, Book Writers, and Illustrators. I'm sort of out of touch with that because my children are 16 and 19, so. Um, but I suspect that there's a lot going on because our children are typically more computer literate than we are. You know, I live in Minneapolis, and there's the Minneapolis Center for Book Arts, and there's also an MFA in Children's Writing Mind. Children's Writers, we just recently started a program, so this is another example, where they're making little flip books Very, that's like the chapbook. Yeah. Very simple and organic, but beautiful. And they're just like, giving those out, and it's sort of a way for a calling card for a children's writer to kind of walk around. It's A lot of communities, especially universities, communities have book arts centers or programs, and so that's a good place to learn some of that practical construction. It, even if you don't want to do letterpress, you might get a hold of some of the software that helps you set up how to make a book. There's something interesting. I went and checked it out at the library here, the big library, you know, the university library. It's interesting. They have a, a small selection, but. Uh, Yeah, oh yeah, there's a great program here and a great library. But you also have Prairie Lights here, so you can go <laughs> look at different ways of making books here. So we're at the noon hour. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to talk with you.